Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Rob Bluey, I am the Vice President of Communications and Editor-in-Chief of the Daily Signal. John Hilbolt normally has the honor of greeting you, but I will try to remember his uh, his instructions, which I know is to silence your cell phones. We encourage you to tweet, though, so so please keep them out and, uh, and, and share this so uh, our online audience can view. And if you're watching online, um, you uh, can find this program posted within 24 hours on heritage.org, and uh, hopefully you'll check it out and share it with uh, with those who who um, might also be on social media. Well, it is a great honor to welcome uh, my former colleague Erica Anderson back to the Heritage Foundation uh, for today's event. Um, Erica and I worked together for about four years here when she served as our digital strategy manager at Heritage. Uh, helping us grow our presence in social media uh, by leaps and bounds, uh, some tremendous growth under uh, Erica's watch, and also uh, using her talents to help us launch the Daily Signal in 2014. It was that early success that really set us on a firm foundation, and uh, I'll always be grateful to Erica for the hard work and dedication she showed during that uh, period of time. She has a unique ability to connect with uh, a community and to tell powerful stories. And that's um, exactly what uh, we're here to hear from her about today. Um, she has written this new book, oh, Leaving Cloud Nine. Uh, copies are available outside. I hope you'll all um, purchase a copy. Um, Leaving Cloud Nine, the true story of a life resurrected from the ashes of poverty, trauma, and mental illness. Um, Erica was kind enough to show me the galley uh, several months ago, and it is truly uh, an inspiring uh, story, and I hope uh, you'll enjoy the program and what she's going to share with us today. The uh, book's official publication date is actually not until next week, so we're, we have a treat um, that, that you're among the first people to hear Erica speak about this. And um, before I turn it over to her, I want to just give a little bit more on her background and bio. Uh, she's currently the Digital Marketing Director at the at Independent Women's Forum and Independent Women's Voice. I'd like to thank the team from IWF for co-hosting today's event. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, in her role there, Erica directs online marketing and social media campaigns, advertising, and content promotion. Uh, previously, she worked at National Review as the digital director, where she helped develop their strategy and expanded the organization's social media footprint. Erica also worked on Capitol Hill for our current vice president, uh, when Mike Pence was chairman of the House Republican Conference, and she was director of online media outreach. She's also served as the communications director for Congressman Todd Rakita of Indiana. Now, in addition to these impressive roles, Erica is someone who loves to write, 
So it's no surprise to me that she's written this book. Uh, she got her start at Human Events. Uh, she wrote some of our most popular stories during her time at Heritage when she contributed to the Daily Signal, and she continues to serve as a freelance writer today. She's also the creator of The Sweet Life, a blog focused on her family, food, exercise, and leading a healthy and balanced lifestyle. Please join me in welcoming Erica Anderson. for coming. It's great to see familiar faces in the audience. Uh, so the trick is to remember to turn the PowerPoint slide um, when, when it's time. So that's the um, information. Okay, we'll start. All right. Uh, well, it's an honor and a privilege to be back here at Heritage um, in a format that I never expected. Um, like Rob said, I spent four years here working in the communications department with the best boss ever, <laughs> Rob Louie. <laughs> Um, and I've attended plenty of speakers and luncheons um, in this very room, actually. I've, you know, attended so many events here at Heritage as a staff member and just as a, a fan of the organization. But I never thought I would be the one up in front of you talking about such serious issues, the issues of generational poverty, opioid addiction, and about the redemption of someone so incredibly close to me. The truth is I care a lot about these issues, especially in light of the opioid crisis that is destroying so many families across our country today. I care about government policies regarding assistance for the poor and welfare for neglected children, as well as the grave spiritual and personal problems that are plaguing so many demographics in our society today. But if you told me years ago that Leaving Cloud Nine would be my first book, I would have told you no way. I knew I wanted to write a book, but this wasn't what I had in mind uh, when I had dreams of writing a book as a child. But um, clearly God had other plans um, for my life and for what I would write um, as my first book. Uh, my hope is that God will use my husband Rick's story to help some of the thousands of people in this country who are experiencing generational poverty including those who are um, struggling inside the problem of opioid addiction. I hope it helps people dealing with depression and overcoming childhood trauma and is a source of guidance and hope and ultimately peace for those who need it. The cycle can be broken, and my husband is proof of that. So a big thank you to Heritage for allowing me the opportunity to share my husband's story and also to the Heritage experts whose research and information I was able to use and. Uh, learning about this and, um, and, and putting a lot of good information inside the book. So how did this book come about? Well, everything changed when I met my husband in 2010. That's us and our, our wedding in Jamaica, which highly recommend you get married in Jamaica. It's beautiful. <laughs> uh, it was an awesome wedding. Um, and so we, of course, we dated, married. We now have two beautiful children. That's them. Jacob is two and Abby is three months, and my mom is holding her in the back, if you want to take a look at her. Um, <clears throat> but through meeting my husband, um, I learned about a life that I had never personally experienced. Uh, this was something that I, coming from a middle-class background with a wonderful, supportive family, it was, he would tell me stories about things that I had, I had no experience with, and it was, it was rather shocking. Um, but the truth is that there are millions of children that are living some of the things that he lived out, and there are millions of people that are recovering from the kinds of trauma that he went through as well. So um, here, here are some of the ways that my husband Rick's upbringing is common among uh, groups today. So today, 43 million Americans live in poverty, and 24 million children grow up without a father. 
Eight million children live with a parent with a substance abuse problem, and tens of thousands are taken from their parents' homes each year to be raised by grandparents or in foster homes. In fact, in some states, the rates of children in foster care have actually increased um, up to 20% or more, and that's due in part to the opioid crisis. Layered into this problem is one of class warfare, where lower-class families have little interaction with upper-class families, and it leaves them to dwell in the bottom rungs of society. They have less access to good schools, to mentors, activities, and opportunities they would otherwise have. This opportunity gap, as it's known, is only widening. Uh, We need to fix it for kids like Rick. Being poor certainly doesn't mean that a parent is abusive, but it does mean that it's a lot harder for kids that are stuck in those kind of situations to get out of them later. So let's see. I think I'm. Yep. So that's that's Rick as a as a little boy. He looks just like my son. <laughs> They're pretty much twins. Uh, so so Rick grew up in the West, both in Arizona and Colorado. It was a very beautiful place for such an ugly experience. He lived in trailers, hotels with grandparents, and on one occasion, he even slept outside. In fact, the name of this book, Leaving Cloud Nine, alludes to a trailer park that he uh, that he grew up in and spent several years living in. His mother was a severe alcoholic. She eventually became a drug addict. His father left when he was only two, and there were men in and out of his house and out of his life. Most of them were nameless, but at least one of them was abusive and dangerous. Let me go through just a summary of what he experienced. He witnessed things that no child should ever have to see. Things like his mother being severely beaten by a boyfriend. He was taken on drug deals as young as six years old. He was left and abandoned in a hotel room with his sister at only five years old for extended periods of time. He walked in on his... Sorry, this always gets me. He walked in on his mother's failed suicide attempts on more than one occasion. I'm going to get a drink of water. (laughs) Other nights, he and his sister took watch over their mom, passed out on the kitchen floor, drunk. He remembers hiding behind beds to escape child protective services. coming to take him away, and being chased down the highway by cops who were after his mom's car for stolen goods. As a 15-year-old, his mother offered him his first experience with crystal meth, and multiple times he was taken from his home to live with his grandparents while his mother was in jail after being arrested again. To this day, it still makes me emotional, obviously, um, to think about the person that I love so much going through all of that. Um, And it can be startling to hear um, if you've never experienced it or you don't know someone that's experienced it, it's it's awful. So um, when you hear the description of my husband, you would maybe think that he just became another statistic. Um, because here's what the data shows about kids who've gone through these kinds of things. They're called adverse childhood experiences, and I'll just refer to them as ACEs. I'll put them up here on the screen. Um, they include 11 criteria, and experts say that Experiencing more than two to three of them can have severe consequences on an individual's future health, both mentally and physically. So you can see here on the screen, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical neglect, emotional neglect, intimate partner violence, mother treated violently, 
substance misuse within the household, household mental illness, parental separation or divorce, and incarcerated household member. Rick experienced 10 out of 11 of these criteria, most notably the emotional abuse, neglect, and substance abuse within the house. There are tens of thousands of children across the country that are experiencing some of these things right now. As Rick entered adulthood, he suffered the consequences of his mom's actions. At his lowest point as an adult, he found himself depressed, divorced, dealing with extreme anger and hopelessness. He was a statistic at that time. He had little hope of overcoming the oppressive childhood that had chains around him. People who suffer from multiple ACEs, like Rick, are more likely to experience lifetime episodes of depression, sleeping problems, have toxic stress, and experience more chronic physical illness. There are serious health risks, not just mental and emotional ones. People who have multiple ACEs are far more likely to get pulmonary disease, hepatitis, lung cancer, heart disease, more likely to feel suicidal, something we've all been made more painfully aware of in recent weeks. In fact, I wrote an op-ed last week. Um, people that experience six or more ACEs are actually 24 times more likely to attempt suicide um, than the average person. And, you know, <laughs> we're reading about a, a person that's experienced 10 of 11. So um, the mental state that he was in at one point in his life was truly, truly devastating. Uh, the stress caused by the ACEs actually is internalized to affect your organs and your entire body. The reality is the brains and bodies of people who experience these things as children are affected in a multiple, uh, multitude of ways, and there are neurological reasons that they end up with addictions, high rates of mental illness, health problems that would otherwise seem unrelated. Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris is a pediatrician who has done extensive research on this, um, on this and she explains it this way. Imagine you're walking in the forest and you see a bear. Immediately, your hypothalamus sends a signal to your pituitary, which sends a signal to your adrenal gland that says, release stress hormones, adrenal, cortisol. And so your heart starts to pound, your pupils dilate, your airways open up, and you are ready to either fight that bear or run from the bear. And that is wonderful if you're in a forest and there's a bear. But the problem is, what happens when the bear comes home every night and that system is activated over and over and over again? This is the reality that my husband lived with for so many years. Not surprisingly, many children who experience these things are ultimately diagnosed with PTSD, as he was. Um, in addition, they're often looking for a way out of the poverty and the trauma that they've experienced, and they turn to the military out of desperation or lack of options. And my husband um, was a member of the Army. Uh, this gives a fuller picture of why so many veterans suffer from PTSD, something that they might have even gotten before um, joining the military. And this is pretty fascinating, something I learned while doing research for this book. Um, I don't know if this is very widely known, but I'll share it with you. Um, PTSD from a wartime experience and PTSD from a childhood trauma are actually the exact same diagnosis. Um, the brain experiences the same types of chemical effects from both times of trauma. And a 2014 study actually found that men in the military in the last four decades are actually more than twice as likely than those in the general population to have been abused as children or grown up around domestic violence or substance abuse. Essentially, they're more likely to possess more ACEs. Veterans experience higher rates of poor mental health, um, suicide risk, and this has often been attributed to a wartime experience, but actually half of veteran suicides happen um, to those who've never been deployed to a war zone. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, obviously, you know, the study hypothesizes that this is because 
many men that enter the military are actually already suffering from the ACEs. And so it, it all gets kind of lumped together and, and, and traumatic service is often blamed when that might not be the whole story. Um, it really is a lot to take in. The stories of neglect and abuse that I've told you today um, and that you'll hear in the news, um, you see you know, plenty of stories in, in news outlets today about kids that are affected by the opioid crisis or neglected by their parents. Um, these things paired with relationship problems, poverty, mental illness, and despair, we want to find a way to fix it. I wanted to help my husband, and I know so many people want to help their loved ones out of the trap. Um, but how do we do it? So many people look to the government for the solution. Um, government policies have a, a great role in shaping lives and um, and helping people. These programs are, are good, but they can only go so far. Uh, President Trump is making noble efforts to help curb the opioid addiction crisis. He's providing more education, cutting down on domestic and international drug rings, and offering more treatment and recovery programs. These are great steps, and I'm so glad that our government is, is taking this so seriously. It's really only... Only part of the puzzle, though, to how we how we deal with this problem. Uh, these tangible efforts are really doing little to address the more ingrained spiritual and moral crisis facing those who are compelled to use drugs and alcohol and serial relationships to deal with the despair in their lives. This all leads to more poverty and new generations of heartbreaking pattern. We have to address both sides of the problem. Last year, the Washington Post did a series of stories on families dealing with these kinds of issues. Overwhelmingly, it was shown that individuals weren't just a casualty of a government system. They were actually um, self-destructive, hopeless, lonely. Life circumstances like failing marriages, job loss, um, economic stress paired with bad personal decisions left them feeling empty and without purpose. Loss of this, this loss of purpose, community and religious life and friendship, this loneliness, it all leads segments of society to a life of generational poverty, abuse, depression, and addiction. In poor communities like the one Rick grew up in, rates of divorce and single parenthood are very high. These are situations that are stressful, hard. This contributes to the depression and despair, and it leads people to retreat, struggle in their jobs, or maintain good parenting. As Robert Putnam put it in his seminal book, Our Kids, poverty produces family instability, family instability produces poverty. In these same towns and communities, there aren't a lot of money for community things that traditionally have brought people together, things like a local YMCA, community center, sports teams. Budgets are cut, people leave town, and the people that are left uh, can't leave or don't care. And it's just a cycle of community breakdown, and it all contributes to the problem. Research also shows that the loss of a religious community is tied to the loss of a coherent family structure. Um, involvement in a religious community actually leads to a happier, more connected life. And a recent Pew study showed that religious people have a strong sense of gratitude, honesty, prayer, forgiveness. Imagine the consequences if large numbers of people in certain communities just gave up on all of this. The consequences would be devastating, and they are. There may not be one specific point of blame, but all the government assistance and programs in the world cannot solve and will not solve the very personal and spiritual problems in our hearts. For many, it's that inner turmoil and an inability to deal with it that is the final nail in the coffin. So the question is, how did one man overcome his past? How did Rick, my husband, how did he climb out of this cycle um, and make it um, when so many others haven't been able to do so? So the answer is layered. It begins with people, and both individuals and community are part of that, and it ends with God. Uh, Rick's mom, and later himself as an adult, 
didn't even realize that they needed to get help. Um, not only government help, but just the other kinds of help I'm talking about, such as you know, having faith or friendships or strong relationships. That Those things just didn't enter their minds. Um, and one of the most poignant things that Rick said to me during our interviews for this book, Leaving Cloud Nine, um, is that he just didn't know that life could be happy. He said that he just assumed that life was hard, there was no silver lining, and he just didn't think that that was an opportunity for him. And this is just the way it was. It never occurred to him that something better was possible, that, that he could feel freedom and healing. Um, you know, thank goodness he discovered a way to that. Um, it's a tragedy because there's a lot of people out there that feel this way. They just they don't feel like there's a lot going on for them or that they're going to ever be happy. Uh, prayer, friendships, and community were never part of his life growing up. He had to learn these things. He lost decades. It was heartbreaking. Um, the drug addiction, family breakdown, and neglect in his life stemmed partially from his own mother's like isolation in the community around him. That's just the situation he was in. He didn't know any better. He didn't have anyone to show him there was something better. Um, and one part of his saving grace was this. His mom had one long-term boyfriend who was um, a strong role model in his life. It was someone that actually loved and cared about him. You know, they had a dysfunctional relationship, but this was a man who really was there for him in a way that nobody else was. And um, I'm happy to say that they, they still have a relationship today. And I do think having that, that guidance in his life was, was important in the end, even though he didn't feel it back then. And um, then after barely graduating high school, Rick joined the Army, as I mentioned. He felt like he had few options. He felt like there was no money. He didn't have any money for college. He didn't have a job. And so he joined the military kind of out of those lack of options. But thankfully he did because it provided for him friendships, family, community, structure, you know, so many things um, that the military did for him. And, and I know that he would say that it was, um, you know, one of those foundational points in his life that really got him on the right foot. Um, next up, family. After living through divorce and multiple unhealthy relationships as an adult, he found himself in a relationship with someone who was healthy and who did have a good family and a relationship with God. When he met me, he could see that life could possibly look better. There was something better. Um, and so that was another part of his um, eventual healing. And then lastly, God. As so many do, Rick at one point felt he had hit his emotional rock bottom. He had lived his entire life pretty much disconnected from God, very little prayer of, of any kind or attending, attending church. Um, but it was right here in Washington, D.C., um, at National Community Church that he came to know God in a, a very personal way. He started reading the Bible. He started praying daily, reading books. Um, he just he just started to be persistent about this and actually believing that maybe this can maybe this can actually work. And um, and it did. Um, it was a new world. And when he opened his heart up to the possibility that God could change his life, everything began to shift. It was as if God had been preparing him for this moment of redemption, and he finally let him in. But his story isn't over. There are still long-term effects to deal with. Oh, I'm going to change the slide. <laughs> so that's him when he was in the Army. <laughs> and there's our family. <laughs> his story isn't over. There are still long-term effects to deal with the trauma. It doesn't just disappear. Some of the aces may haunt him for the rest of his life. As we look to solve the problem of generational poverty and addiction, to minimize the neglect and abuse of children, and expand the opportunities they have to escape from it. We must remember that the answer is deeper than a policy solution and must be combined with a full-scale cultural community and faith-based effort to help the heart and soul arise from these traumatic experiences. 
You can send someone like Rick's mom to rehab, but without the foundational support of thriving relationships and community, they will go back to their drug. Without the hope greater than this world, they will feel the need to revert back to the substance that gets them through. It's that purpose that really is the, the, the point here. They need that purpose in their lives. And without that, you know, it's not about necessarily why, or it's not necessarily about how are they getting these drugs. It's about why are they doing them? And, and that's the heart of the matter. And, and there's really no easy solution to that. Um, it, there, there are, you know, it comes from both community, individuals, government. Like there are so many components to how we fix this problem, but no, no good answer is ever easy, I feel like. And so I think it's important that we're all um, thinking about all the ways that we can help solve this problem. Um, but while leaving cloud nine is my husband's story, and he's so brave to let me share it. You know, there are so many stories in this book that are um, not just the good stuff about him. There's some, you know, some hard stuff that he had to share. Maybe, you know, he's he's not an angel either. And so it was very brave of him to let me write this story. He's my husband is a is is an introvert. You know, he's not a public person, and so for him to allow the story to be told simply because he wants other people to find hope, um, I give him a lot of credit for that. So, um, and he's not on Twitter or anything, so nobody can send mean messages. <laughs> but um, but I, but we wrote it, and and I wrote it because we as a society we need to get to the root of this problem that's causing causing this generational problem of despair. It's, you know, more than poverty and more than addiction. It's really, it's despair. It's depression. It's a loss of purpose. Like we need to get to the heart of that. And I think this book, um, this book tells the story of someone who got out of that and he, he stopped that cycle. And I, there are so many people out there that I, I believe could also follow his path and, and find guidance from what he's gone through. Um, National Review writer David French, whose work I quote in this book and who has also endorsed the book, says this, Life has always been hard for the poor, but it has not always been quite so lonely. Part of this is the legacy of the welfare state, which allows and even encourages lives of quiet desperation, cut off from the communities that used to sustain the less fortunate in their struggles. Part of it is this legacy of the sexual revolution, which devalued marriage irreversibly cast off the shackles of self-denial. And yes, part of it is economics. Losing a job is among the most stressful of all human experiences. The complex nature of the crisis should not be a license to avoid facing its ultimate truth head on. America's working class is in the grips of a malady far more spiritual than material. We can spend trillions more, but safety nets won't save the human soul. So when you think about poverty, addiction, depression, trauma. Think about the life my husband's mom lived, about the life that he began to live out and the life that he recovered from. It's far more complicated than any one government initiative, but I can say that seeing uh, my husband's experience firsthand, it is not hopeless. Um, when Rick looks back at the journey that he took, the, it's clear how much these foundational institutions, the military, the church, the family, and God were important in his eventually finding victory over his demons from the past. There is a way out, and I just hope that leaving Cloud9 can point people in that direction. Thank you. I think we have lunch.
could sit or you can stay standing. But um, I'd like to open it up to to your questions. Um, but I wanted to. I, I was disappointed you shifted off the family oh, slide, but because I had a I had a well well well. Anyways, I don't need to because there's some good information up there. But it's appropriate to, for my my question, which is uh, one of the other things you talk about in the book is is Rick as a father and just being a day after Father's Day. I was hoping you might be able to share. Um, both, I think, you know, maybe at first some apprehension, but then how he has truly blossomed to be a great father. Sure, and, do I need a microphone? Yeah. Experience as a, going through so much as a child, I, I think has only served to make him an incredible father. He's very concerned with making sure that our kids have the absolute best childhood and best experience. He probably, I say he is a little bit overprotective sometimes, um, more so than me. And he definitely maybe, you know, always gets our kids toys when we go to Target. Um, but <laughs> no, he's, and I'm always kind of like, okay, every time we go to Target, but yeah. There's a lot of toys in our house. Um, so, so yeah, he's absolutely, he's, he's a wonderful father. I mean, he couldn't be better. And, and I, you know, he, he was made, he was made for this role. So, um, if anything, you know, so many times you see fathers, um, follow this pattern, just like the cycle that I was talking about. Well, he has truly broken the cycle in that regard as well. Questions for Erica? Yes. Um, do we have a, do we have a microphone? Yes. Okay. Um, down here in front first. Uh, over here, yes, thank you. Follow it around here. Thanks for being here today. Uh, loved your topic. I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, you had wanted to write this book since you were a young child. What was sort of your, I guess, a two-part question? First, what was your process in terms of actually committing to writing this and getting it done and how long it took? And then sort of that process of, okay, now it's done, Am I really going to get this published? I'm really going to be at the Heritage Foundation talking about this? Like, what was kind of that emotional roller coaster for you? Yeah, well, I've been a, a writer, I guess, since I was a little kid. I entered writing contests when I was seven years old. So I've always loved being a writer. Um, and, of course, the ultimate goal of any writer is to have a published book. And I always said, oh, that's the life goal, but... But will it ever happen? Who knows? But when I, it's true that when I did meet my husband and he started telling me these stories of his life, um, the, all I could think was, this is a book. I mean, your life story is meant to be a book. And so we started interviewing. Long story short, though, I started this in 2013. So it's been kind of a journey, <laughs> kind of a long journey. Um, but I did get to the point where I said one time, you know what? I'm going to finish this. I'm going to stop putting it away for six months and pretending that it's ever going to get done. And I really committed writing time to it. And um, the process of actually getting a book deal really came about. I mean, you know, it may sound cliche to say, but it was really all God. He, he kind of put it into motion, introduced me to the right people. And it kind of, I didn't... Um, you know, I didn't go out of my way too much actually to make it happen. I, I got great introductions and the story is, it's a, it's a story of cultural relevance right now and it really is important to the national conversation. And I think like boiling it down to this one, this one person that can kind of represent some of the statistics and the things that we're talking about in government. Um, I think that's why it was appealing to the publisher. Um, and so, once I finished it and I wrote a book proposal, which is a whole other thing, um, <laughs> turned it in, got the whole ball rolling, um, I was lucky enough that a publisher wanted to to buy it and get get the ball rolling. So that's the kind of shorter version of that. But I will talk to you more if you want more details. <laughs> 
Erica, can I ask a follow-up question yeah. on that? Uh, we um, we often hear that conservatives are are so bad at telling stories. In fact, this is one of the reasons we started the Daily Signal was because we wanted to put a human face on a lot of these policy issues. Can you talk to the audience about that process of of telling the story and and why it was uh, something that fueled your passion for for longer than uh, well before you started this book, but how this book maybe encapsulates that. Yeah, I mean, well, the story in and of itself, everyone loves kind of a redemption story. That's really the ultimate, um, you know, any any good movie, any good book, it's like you've got this, this somebody that overcomes something. So the story just kind of like presented itself to me, and I, it was just up to me to kind of become the storyteller and um, and put words to this this life that had so many ups and downs. And um, I I heard someone say recently that. Don't like writing books is hard. So don't write a book unless you can't not write that book. And that's exactly how I felt. Like I didn't, it didn't matter to me if this book got published. It didn't matter to me if only, you know, my parents read it. It was just like this. I'm going to write this book. I'm going to tell this story because it, it needs to be told. It deserves to be told. And, um, Obviously, being a writer helps with that. It's it's funny because at the publishing company, sometimes they they would say, "Oh, so many of our authors aren't writers. It's so nice to have someone that's actually a good writer." I'm like, "That's so weird," but because a lot of times they publish books from like famous people that have big names, but they don't they're not good writers. So, anyways, um, so that's kind of how I felt about this. Like it was just it it just presented itself to me, and it's almost like I didn't have a choice. Like I was gonna write this this book, and I was gonna self publish it. And I really didn't believe that it would have the opportunity to be really published by a big publisher. But like I said, um, things moved along and I was, I was happy to accept that option. Other questions? Yes. What was the conversation like with Rick saying, I want to write the story and then telling him that it was going to be published? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Honestly, it was really his idea from the beginning because when, you know, it all really kicked off as we started to get to know each other. Um, We met in 2010 and we were talking and I would say, make comments like this is a, your life is just like, it's, it's crazy. Like he, cause even today, sometimes he still comes up with stories that he hadn't told me before. And I'll be like, how did you not tell me that? I'll be like, that should have been in the book, (laughs) you know? Um, So, you know, he was like, you should, he said, you should write it. You should write it. You're a writer. You should write it. Um, as things kind of got to this point though, I think he, he got pretty nervous, you know, but honestly, in our conversations with one another, it, it's really, we, we truly believe that this book can bring hope to other people. We really believe that it's got some direction and guidance that, um, that other people can use. And he wants other people to find what he found. Like he was truly a extremely unhappy, depressed person that didn't have much to live for. And he didn't ever think that he was going to get out of that. And he knows that there are people that feel like that. And he wants them to know that it doesn't have to be that way. And, and you know, it was ultimately his faith um, that pulled him out completely. And he found that healing and he found that purpose. And he can't imagine not telling other people about that. Because what if he was still living that way? And, you know, here he is married with these two beautiful children and having a life that he never thought that he would have. So he's happy to share, although I will say he's a little anxious right now. (laughs) Erica, I'll I'll come to you in a second. A follow-up note on that. You you talked in your remarks about um, government's role and some of the limits of government's role. Well, here you are on Capitol Hill today. And what message would you like policymakers across the street to take away from your book? (laughs) 
That's a great question, Rob. <laughs> um, well, I think, well, you know, one thing is I'm, like I said, I'm so glad that they're taking this so seriously that it's, um, you know, President Trump and the administration, they're implementing these programs and that are good. Now we have to be careful. We don't want government to like overstep their role as some of the thing, one thing we've talked about at IWF is that the government actually had a role in creating uh, over the overprescription of opioids um, by quotas that needed to be fulfilled. Now I don't have like a lot of great like information off the top of my head about that, but you definitely can check IWF.org for some of the information we have about that. But, um, but I, I just like them to, to recognize that, um, government is not going to be the full answer. It's going to take individuals and local communities, um, to be a part of this. Um, we need to, and, and the other thing I would mention is, is how important a strong economy is. That's something I kind of like threw in here later, but I realized like, you know, having jobs is part of having purpose. And, and that is, is a problem in a lot of these communities that are dealing with opioid addiction. A lot of the jobs are, are not there and, and community centers are not there and, um, religious life is not there. Churches are leaving. I mean, so there's so much breakdown. And so I think we need to make sure that we're focusing, um, on those kind of, um, smaller, more local avenues that we, rather than just big federal government policies. Thank you. Yes, down here in the front. Thank you very much, Erica, for being here today. And uh, I'm really glad to hear about the book uh, because it's not even out yet. I haven't had a chance to to sit down and really read it. Um, and uh, hearing this story, I wish that Rick could be here today with you to see you, his wife, at the top of her game. Um, my question, though, is uh, hearing about these stories, you talk a lot about his growing up, him being a child, and now as an adult. Uh, do, does the book talk about, or if not, can you talk about a little bit about his relationship with his mother and his siblings now as an adult, if he's had a chance to repair any of those relationships, and how his redemption, how it's affected his family? Yes, definitely. Uh, so his mom is obviously a key character in this book. You'll read a lot about her. Um, they were estranged for probably 12 years or so. Um, you know, after when he was about 22 or so, they parted ways. Uh, there is a, I do talk in the book about when they, um, reconnected, which was, you know, several years ago. We actually went out, we met her, I met her. Um, and it was kind of short lived, um, just because she's still a very dysfunctional person that has a lot of, uh, same kind of problems. Um, so they no longer have a relationship, unfortunately. But the good thing is that their reconnection, um, was a huge part of his healing process. Like it was something that needed to happen. And so you'll read all about that in the book. It's, it's actually a pretty incredible story. Some of the things that happened that, um, brought us to that place. Um, and he, so also in the book, you'll read about his sister and, and she's also a success story. Um, they're very close. They're not even two years apart. And, um, his sister and him are very close. Like they're, they're best friends. They, they went through it together. I mean, I, that's, I didn't even mention this in the speech, but they would both tell you that having one another through this was a huge, huge thing in getting them through. And if anyone has been, um, his solid in life. It's her. And um sorry to makes me cry too because I love her too and um it means a lot to me that she was willing to to be a part of this book as well. And she's so strong. Um 
so anyways, yes, his sister, um, incredible, incredible woman. Um, and they're very close. And, um, she also was able to break this chain. Um, she got out of the cycle. She, uh, luckily she found a, a wonderful man to marry when she was very young. Uh, they have four kids. Um, they're doing great. And, you know, she still suffers from this too. Like she went through all the same, um, traumatic experiences and, you know, of course, like they're going to deal with some of those things for the rest of their lives. But, you know, also through her faith and through family, she has also found a lot of healing and freedom. And so they're both like the two of them. It's incredible that the two of them have come to the place that they are. Um, so, you know, we don't have really much contact with any of the rest of his family. Um, but luckily we, our families do live nearby together in Indiana. And, um, you know, thankfully my family, um, has also, you know, welcomed, <laughs> welcomed Rick in. And, um, I hope that he feels that our family is, you know, really his, truly his family as well. Um, I'm wondering, I've never heard the story about how you two met. And I'm also wondering, you know, as we are talking about the epidemic of loneliness that is plaguing so many individuals and driving so many of the issues that you talked about, how how can we change the conversation um, and our society's automatic response to look to government to fix these solutions? Um, and in that same vein, you know, church and religion and other institutions like that are often viewed as like a pariah in our society. So how can we change some of the attitude about that and just the conversation about that as a whole? Okay, well, I'll start with your first question, <laughs> which is that we met online. <laughs> so yeah, we met online and it's it's always weird to think back because it's like now it's like, how do we meet online? That's so such a weird, like knowing him, it's strange to me that he was even doing online dating, but, um, but it was clearly, um, it was cl clearly meant to be. So I'm so glad that um, we found each other's profiles on match.com. And um, <laughs> true, just your other question, how do we change the conversation? Well, I think that, um, I think everyone really needs to take responsibility, um, to, so, so many times you want to say, oh, what is government doing? What is government doing? And, and of course, government should be doing stuff. But we also need to, like, look around and, like, what is around us that we can be doing? And I think so many times, like, the responsibility of, of individuals to kind of help friends, family, like, maybe back home where they came from or just places that they care about, um, in terms of making sure that there are, um, like, things prioritized, like, building up the communities like community centers and sports teams and um, making sure that jobs are, um, you know, um, making sure that jobs are coming back to those places. Um, and then um, I'm losing my train of thought. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously not an easy answer. You know, I'm up here. I'm like, how can we solve the opioid crisis? Well, it's not an easy answer. And I think it is all of these things put together. Uh, one thing I, I was thinking about um you know, actually an op-ed I wrote for the Federalist last week, um, I was talking about how um, churches, like, you know, mega churches used to be like a really big thing. And lately there's been a lot, of, there's been a trend of church planting. And and one thing I think churches should focus on is, is really planting churches in some of these more um, desperate areas and these places that really need that. Because actually religious life, as I said, is really... Um, declining in a lot of these areas. And and I, I have to say, I don't think that's a coincidence that in the same places that religious life is declining, um, we're seeing higher rates of drug addiction, depression, and suicide. Um, and so I think that that's a key part of, of what's going on. And we can't neglect any part of this um, puzzle to, to, to kind of helping get a handle on the crisis. Yes. Second row. 
third round. Thank you for your story. Fascinating story. And I'm sitting here and I'm saying, how did you come up with the title for your book? And I have something else to say once you say that. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so the title, Leaving Cloud Nine, is the uh, trailer park that he lived in. And so when we were thinking of titles, um, we thought, wow, that's kind of a great play on words. You know, Cloud Nine, because so many things. And so that's where it came from. <laughs> I say that because years ago I was younger. The Temptations sang a song called Cloud Nine. Oh. And it dealt with drug, someone who was using drugs. Oh, really? Like Interesting. There it is called Cloud I'm going to have to look that up. Look it up. It's a fascinating song. Very interesting. And I, I think David Ruffin, who was the leader at that time of the Temptations, I think he sang it. If not, it was the guy who took his place because, you know, David had caught up in, in drugs and was eventually, he was killed. So many years Man, ago. Well, that's that's a coincidence, but I will definitely look at it. I love the temptations. So. Listen to it. Very nice song. Very interesting song. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your story again. Thank you so much. Other questions for Erica? Sorry, I can't see the screen. <laughs> Is there a sequel in the works? <laughs> I don't I mean, I guess there could be. I do feel like I learned a lot about I, I feel like I have a lot of good advice about marriage. <laughs> We didn't get into a lot of this, but um, in the book you will read about how Rick uh, has dealt with bipolar disorder and um, social anxiety disorder and a lot of things and and how I, uh, you know, kind of dealt with that as a spouse and as a family because there's a lot that you have to deal with um, when someone that you love has a mental illness, especially someone that you're married to. Um, it's not just um, something that you can just go into and just hope it works out. You really have to kind of read up and educate yourself and learn how to live with it and um, make it work. And, and thankfully, things are wonderful now. He, he went through a really bad pe- period of time with that. Um, but but yeah, I, I could see myself writing writing another book of, of some kind related to us. We'll see. <laughs> Erica, you talked earlier about the, the process of, of writing and then getting the book deal. We also know that you're in a critical time right now in terms of promoting the book. So what can you share with our audience about what happens next week when it's officially published and where can they find more information? I know you have some things on the screen here. What are you going to be doing over the next few weeks? Yeah, so um, the book is available for pre-order, but also obviously we're selling it out there if you want to buy one. It is actually a couple dollars less here than it is on Amazon. So if you want to buy it here, I recommend it. Um, so yeah, so next Tuesday, June 26th, it comes out. And, um, I think if you order it now, if you, or if you have pre-ordered it, it kind of, it arrives that day. Um, so over the next week or two, I'll be doing a lot of interviews, doing a lot of podcasts, um, doing one with Heritage after this and the one with the Federalist later. And then, um, next Tuesday, I'll be on, um, Essie Cup's show on HLN Tuesday night, the night of release. So I'm really excited about that to be able to share that with her audience and we're working on getting some other, um, some other media on top of that. So it'll be a very crazy week. And it's also just been a crazy time because I, um, have a three month old. So <laughs> life is just a little insane right now. Um, but please follow me on social media. If you, if you haven't, you can visit the website at leavingcloud9.com. Um, it has that trailer and some other information. And, um, I feel like I need to actually, I think I'm going to make Rick like create an email just for this. I feel like people are going to want to get in touch with him, maybe like those that relate. So, um, so anyways, yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, I certainly think they, they will. Um, any, any last questions for, for Erica? 
If not, I'd, I'd like to thank the Independent Women's Forum again for co-sponsoring today's event, to thank Erica for her great remarks and um, and writing this book. I really do think um, it is the story that many Americans need to hear, and thank Rick for, for sharing it. So please join me. Erica will be, um, you're going to do the signing in the lobby. So Erica will be in our lobby uh, to sign the books if you'd like to purchase a copy and get her autograph. Thank you all for coming today.